Thank you guys for having me. I got married on this campus about 20 years ago. My wife was a student here. She's uh, played tennis here. So I have a special place in my heart for Trinity. Uh, we're gonna talk a lot about elbow injuries and throwers. It's a lot to shove into 45 minutes. So I'll, I'll be going through quite a bit of stuff, but we'll have time in the breakout session to really go through you know, some of the assessment and exam and, and just hopefully give you some pearls of wisdom. So like Dr. Smith said, I've been in Houston for about 20 years. I've been incredibly fortunate to spend a lot of time with uh, a ton of amazing athletic trainers and professional baseball who have uh, combined hundreds of years of experience. They've seen hundreds of thousands of pitches and, and they kind of took me under their wing about 15 years ago. And so for the last 15 years, my primary practice has been working with baseball players. And so I uh, get pretty fired up talking about it. It's what I love to do. We have a place to throw in our clinic. We have throwers in there all the time. So we'll share a lot about that with you. So we talk about the we're going to talk about the mechanism of elbow injuries. We're going to give you a breakdown of, of those injuries based on the area affected, soft tissue, bony, ligamentous. We're going to talk a lot about this because obviously it's a huge area with UCL reconstruction. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about nerve. And then we're going to talk in, in the breakouts about special considerations in the elite thrower. And we'll really talk about you know, the exam and throwing program design, some of those key things to getting these kids back on the field after they've had things done. So as we talked about, really the, one of the big things we're going to discuss is the UCL. It provides the valgus stability in the elbow and works to adapt and resist the loads that are applied with throwing. And we're going to talk about how high those loads are, how fast they are, and how much repetition there is. And, you know, it, it's, it's really when you look at these guys and their external rotation, when they're striding out to throw a ball, we're talking 165 to 180 degrees of external rotation. So a lot of torque, not just on the shoulder, but on the elbow. Throwing creates very, very high valgus loads. And obviously guys are throwing all the time, especially now we're in the South. We have an epidemic of overuse in the younger athletes. We have kids that are playing, you know, multiple tournament teams. They're, they're always throwing a baseball year round. And there's, there's really a, an epidemic of overuse. And then we have a li limited ability of the elbow musculature to help us resist, resist those loads. We'll talk a little bit on throwing mechanics, but I don't want that to be, you know, kind of undersold with this. It's an absolute critical part of getting these kids back on the field and keeping them healthy. And essentially it's micro trauma to the ligament with a lack of time for complete recovery. And that leads to attenuation. And we'll show you what some of the, the normal abnormals are. When we talk about angular velocity of the shoulder, it's anywhere from seven to 8,000 degrees per second that your shoulder goes from max external to an internally rotated position. And the elbow specifically goes from a flexed to extended position at three to 4,000 degrees per second. So we're talking about high, high loads and incredibly high speed of movement, which if there's a small breakdown in mechanics or strength or anatomical structure, uh, that's where you start seeing things go, go sideways. We'll briefly talk on the phases of throwing. The windup is pretty simple. It's as guys start to get moving Early cocking and stride, late cocking, acceleration, ball release, and follow through. And there's a great article that summarizes this all the way through the hip and pelvis in sports health that if you guys want it, you can email me and I'll send it to you. So early cocking and stride is basically as the hands break, the guy's starting to, to, to move his arm into abduction. So what happens is that stride length increases the distance over which the acceleration occurs. So it's essentially storing the kinetic energy. Your pelvic tilt and rotation start to occur. 
but really from a shoulder musculature, there's really not much going on here. Your deltoid fires early just to get your arms starting to come up. And then supraspinatus, infraspinatus, and teres are active late to start getting your arm into an externally rotated position. Rarely do we see anybody that has problems here. And this phase ends as lead foot hits the ground. So you can see here, this is obviously a professional baseball player. You see how much energy he's storing. But at this point still, there's not a lot happening from a muscular standpoint in the shoulder or elbow. This is called the power position for the shoulder. But as we get into late cocking, that's where the stuff starts to really ramp up. And that's at, from that lead foot contact to max external rotation. And like we said, when you add the, the stride component and a spine tilt, you're talking the arm laying back anywhere from 165 to 180. The scapula's got to tilt and retract via the rhomboids, levator, and traps. Abduction and external rotation primarily comes from infraspinatus and teres. And if you look at the angle of pull of supraspinatus, it's really providing glenohumeral compression at that point. Max pelvis rotation, increased trunk rotation velocity, and at the very end of the phase when your arm is really laid back in that max ER, your subscap, pec major, and lats all fire eccentrically just to stop your arm from laying back and stop that ER. And you can see as we talk about the elbow, this is the point where there's the most stress on that, okay? His feet are what we call connected. Stride length is roughly his, his, his body height, and his arm is really laid back. He's taken all that energy through wind-up and laid his arm back there. But if you look at the stress here, and we'll talk about how high that is, the stress with an elite fastball is enough to tear the ligament if you were just repetitively doing that in a lab. Every single time you throw the fastball, it's 35 newtons, and 33 newtons is what the, the ligament breaks in the lab, okay? So a lot going on with the ligament. Acceleration is from that max ER position until ball release. The scapula has to protract and anteriorly tilt with serratus, generating the, the shoulder muscle forces, all that stuff that was slowing your arm down is now shifting to concentric because we're gonna create that power to accelerate the baseball. And this is where subscap activity is at its highest and also, as we're talking specifically today, this is where you get that max three or 4,000 degrees per second of your elbow going from a flex to an extended position. And it happens very quickly. And you see, this was actually one of our team docs was taking some photos in the dugout. He caught the ball coming out of his hand right there. Deceleration and ball release is considered to be the most violent phase for the shoulder. Not, not as much for the elbow, but there's excessive distraction and posterior shear high, high eccentric load to the posterior cuff, and then an incredible amount of eccentric biceps activity because you're trying to slow that elbow down to keep it from banging into full extension. So again, as we talk about the elbow with throwing, it's a high valgus load when you lay your arm back every single time. It happens at an incredibly fast speed. And the primary phases we're gonna see problems with are cocking and then ball release and deceleration. And that's gonna be part of your exam when you're when you're talking to these kids, it's, you know, when does your arm hurt? Where does it hurt in your motion? Because that's going to kind of cue you in as to what you're looking at and what structures are involved. Factors affecting injury, and this is really important in taking care of the elbow. We, we, we kind of have a saying where the elbow doesn't hurt itself. We know the loads are there. We know the loads are high. But why do kids hurt their elbow? Why do guys have UCL reconstruction? All of these other factors have to go into your consideration and into your rehab. Rotator cuff weakness, any kind of altered scapular position, it essentially creates no stable base for, 
for your shoulder to move off of. You maybe can't get your arm laid back as much because you're causing some impingement. But also, really importantly, the cuff lays, it lives on the, on the shoulder blade. So this link tension relationship is specifically driven by where it is uh, in a postural position. And then altered throwing mechanics, and we'll touch on that in the lab a little bit later. Glenohumeral internal rotation deficit is also a factor in this. Decreased use of their lower extremities and core to generate power, and we see that a lot in the, the lower you know, high school kid and, and earlier where they're more of an arm thrower. They're trying to create torque with their arm rather than their legs and their core. Decreased balance and, again, poor mechanics. So we have to address these in order to promote return to throwing after injury. So, you know, we're fortunate that we have a place to throw in the clinic, but we still send these kids out to pitching coaches in the area. We have a handful of guys that, you know, are, are, are really good at this. There are really good ones in your area, and then there are ones who are, are, are not as, as skilled at it. So make sure wherever you are, uh, whether that's your coach at your high school or college, or, you know, someone in your community that can help with this. Because great rehab, we can do all we want in the training room or in the clinic, but if we fix them and we send them back out to throw with, with terrible mechanics, it's just a matter of time before we get there, uh, back to the same spot. And I think it's really important to have the volume discussion, especially in the youth, that's baseball only. We have so many kids that that's their primary sport, starting at seven or eight years of age, and we'll talk about you know, some of the importance of rest in just a little bit as well. So Dr. Andrews will tell you the number one risk factor for UCL injury is bad mechanics. The number two is overuse. You combine those and you're doomed. Injury in the throwing elbow can involve muscle, ligament, bone, nerve, or a combination of these. Obviously, we're going to talk a lot today about ligament stuff, uh, but we'll touch on some of these other ones as well. So part of the reason that we can't or, or that we have more trouble uh, with the elbow is that if you if you look at how much can the elbow contribute to that, and there's only been a few studies, these are really old, but they basically said if we take out the muscle contribution, how much of the rest of those structures are affected or how effective are they at, at dissipating that stress. And basically the, the ligament absorbs about half, the capsule takes about 30%, and the soft tissue stuff, or I'm sorry, the bones take about 30%, and the soft tissue and capsule take about 30%. So at best, in contrast to the shoulder where shoulder strength, shoulder stability is absolutely critical to taking care of the joint, there's only so much we can do with the forearm with this. And then if you look at how much can they, can they help to resist, varus torque would be essentially resisting valgus stress. Pronator, 15%, and then FCR and FCU combined are only about 7%. So if you look at the activity though, FCU, FDS are, are really high MVIC during acceleration. Both of these muscles are really working as hard as they can but they have a limited ability to help us resist that stress. So you can see, I mean, this is a, an old picture uh, of one of our guys that, that we teach with. You can just see how much torque he's got on his inside of his elbow, and that's just basically the musculature of uh, the flexors firing there. So soft tissue stuff, flexor tendonitis, flexor tendon tears. We'll talk briefly about this. We don't see that many true frank flexor tendon tears. Uh, we will see a lot of triceps tendonitis, and these are essentially repetitive overuse injuries that, that you should be able to recover from pretty quickly. Medial forearm pain over the flexor mass. Pain is usually felt at ball release and not cocking phase of throwing. So that's really important in your exam. 
and we'll put these slides up on the website so you guys can get to them. Um, but that's going to be a big part of what you're asking. Where does it, people say, it hurts when I throw. Where does it hurt in your motion? Does it hurt when your arm is back here or does it hurt out at ball release? Also really important after UCL reconstruction, a kid's going and doing his throwing program and emails me, my arm's sore today after throwing. Where is it sore? Circle it, send me a picture of that. What does it hurt to do? It hurts when I pick up my backpack. It hurts when I throw the first few throws, then it gets loose and I feel okay and it's a little sore the next day. Those are things that we tell them are pretty normal post-op, okay, because that's flexor tendon stuff. Really common early in the season, so obviously all of our kids in, in Texas are about to fire up baseball in a couple of weeks. Um, a lot of guys come in amped up. Maybe they haven't done a good off-season program, and they'll start to have some issues here. But again, these are things that, that you should be able to work through pretty quickly. Flexor tendon tears are definitely in the younger thrower not, are not as common. The, the only ones that I've seen lately, uh, the, the two that I've had in the last few years that are true flexor tendon repairs have been revision UCL reconstructions in professional baseball players, guys that have a lot of issues going on. Ulnar neuritis, we will see this uh, fairly commonly more in the older thrower. You will have some in the, in the youth. It's just not that often. Uh, the nerve gets irritated along its course, and then you really need to figure out why. We all know ulnar nerve distribution of that. I throw, and then my, finger, my last two fingers tingle. But importantly, you know, the, the important thing here is to check, is their ulnar nerve subluxing, or do they have valgus instability of their elbow? Have they overstretched their ligament, and then the byproduct of that is traction to the ulnar nerve. So if they have an ulnar nerve transposition, if this is done by itself, it's usually let it calm down for a couple of weeks, start doing some shoulder stuff in two or three weeks, and then by six weeks they should be able to play catch and build back up. It's also important to know, you know what technique your doc is doing, and we'll talk about that in a second with UCL reconstructions, because if they're using the modified Job like Dr. Andrews does, they always move the nerve. Valgus extension and overload is repetitive abutment of the olecranon. So essentially every time they throw, they're banging their arm. This is typically your, your lanky, loose, you know, ligament say lax kid whose elbow really bangs out. They throw a lot of off-speed pitches. And it essentially, combined with the valgus stress, it, it results in impaction and shear along the posterior medial olecranon. But you have to make sure, what does their UCL look like? Is that happening because of a mechanical issue or a ligamentous laxity issue? Or do they truly have a UCL that's starting to go? You can, this can develop into lecanon stress fractures, although not as common. I've probably seen five of those where they put a screw in in the last 10 years. You will see some kids develop spurs, or we'll have a couple of kids a year that have OCD lesions of the capitellum. And then again, you can, create some traction to the ulnar nerve here. So when we look at this, essentially what we're talking about is radiocapitellar joint here, where you'll get some, you know, essentially if, if this is lax, then you've got a hinge, it, it creates a hinge point, right? So it essentially hinges this way and you'll get compression here so you can have spurring here, posterior medial elbow, or you can potentially have some issues with the chondral side of the joint there. Okay, but again, much less common. This is the stuff we see a lot of uh, in the youth thrower, little league elbow. It's the same stress. That's the bottom line that I tell the parents. What's the weakest link when your skeleton is immature? 
The growth plate or the ligament? It's the growth plate, right? So it's essentially the same valgus stress, it's the same overuse stuff, but the weakest link is the growth plate. So it can kind of go along a spectrum here where it's just more medial epicondylitis, but we'll also see kids that just pop off their medial epicondyle or pop off the end of their UCL. And you can also have in some really aggressive cases, you can have development where this stuff goes sideways in the younger kids, seven, eight years old, where they have Panner's disease and basically have necrosis of the growth plate for a little while, okay? And we see that because kids won't shut down. So the important thing to tell the kids here is the number one thing is rest. It's difficult to get these kids to take a break, especially what's considered to be the elite youth. Parent education is critical. And, and where we tell, where we know, we kind of have a joke with one of our orthopedic surgeons, uh, if the parents show up in the, in the travel team hat, the travel team shirt, the travel team jacket, we know we're in trouble uh, because they're, they're not going to listen to us. They're going to say, well, he can't take a break. He's got this showcase this weekend. He can't take a break. Um, and what I tell them is, well, professional baseball players don't pick up a baseball for at least two months after the end of the season. How come your 12-year-old kid can't do that? Okay. So again, the growth plate's the weakest link. And then one thing to consider in your rehab, and this is something I think I made a mistake on early in my career, when you're rehabbing these kids, remember, if it's a medial elbow growth plate, what hooks in there? Everything of your forearm, your flexors, your pronators, everything hooks in there. So if we go aggressive forearm strengthening in that, we may actually be throwing gas on the fire. So we'll use you know, bands, but we may use a strap around their wrist so that they're not having to use forceful grip with that for the first couple weeks till this calms down. So here you can see one of our kids. He basically, it's, it's a little bit blurry since I blew it up, but you can see he just tractioned off his medial epicondyle. And then here's another one of the kids that we saw that basically popped off his sublime tubercle, which is the insertion of his UCL. So in both these cases, these guys got a screw put in to fixate the bone back, okay? So when we talk about professional baseball players, normal is, abnormal is normal. And the statistics say that between 70 and 80% of these guys' shoulders and elbows are abnormal on an ultrasound or an MRI. And that's an asymptomatic. So this study actually looked at a bunch of professional baseball players in spring and they said, what does their range of motion looks like? Essentially, their, their extension was decreased by eight degrees, their flexion was decreased by six degrees, their total arc of motion was about 13 degrees different, but there really wasn't any correlation between how old they were, how long they had pitched, if they'd had surgery or not. So, what I'm telling you with that is that some of these kids are not going to have normal elbow motion. They may have a lag of their extension of their elbow, and that may be normal. Now, post-op, if they have a UCL, we're going to be trying to get their elbow fairly straight, but we'll talk about on this next slide. During your throwing motion, and you'll hear pitching coaches and you know, talk about getting extension and getting your arm extended at ball release, but essentially that really doesn't truly happen. If you look at the statistics, the elbow goes into extension, but it's more pronation and shoulder internal rotation, and the elbow doesn't, doesn't really go past 19 plus or minus four, and flexion of the elbow during the throwing motion is roughly 99 plus or minus 11. So moral of the story is that, is we talked about three to 4,000 degrees per second of extension, and an high eccentric biceps activity. Biceps activity leads to tightness, and that essentially can be an adaptive protective mechanism for these elbows. 
So I've seen some elbows with nasty 20 degree flexion contractures that can still pitch and they can still pitch effectively. So the literature says that 25 degrees is the cutoff. We don't like seeing a kid with a 25 degree flexion contracture uh, that's a baseball player, but again, the, the statistics and the literature say they can still pitch with that. Questions to ask. Kid comes into your, your training room or to the clinic and says, my elbow hurts when I throw. These are the things that I ask them. What position do you play? Do you play multiple positions? Do you pitch and catch? Do you pitch and play outfield? What's your volume of play? I had a 14-year-old kid a couple of years ago uh, with a medial growth plate injury, 14 years old, and by the time he got to us, he had already played 110 games. Okay, average college season, 50 to 60 games. So this kid, and he's, he's 14, he's skinny, he's left-handed, he's not skeletally mature, he's not physically mature, and it was kind of like having the conversation with the parents, like he's basically asking his body to do more than it can physically do, okay? Year-round baseball is very, very good for business for all of us. Um, I ask how much time have you, how much do you time do you take off, if any, most of these kids, a, a lot of them will say none. They don't take any time off or they'll take a week or two. And then when they come to see me in the office, if they've seen the doc, it's how long have you been off from throwing? So if they're a growth plate issue and they live far away and they drove in, it took them, they haven't thrown in a month, they saw the doctor and it's been two weeks before they get in to see us, they've already had a six week break from that. So taking that into consideration when you're designing your throwing program, and we'll talk a lot about that. But again, as we talked about, where in your motion does it hurt? If it's max ER, back here when the arm's laid back, it's usually gonna tell you that it's ulnar collateral stuff. Man, when my arm lays back and I start to stride forward, I feel a sharp pain in my elbow. Or when the ball comes out of my hand, I feel something. Again, knowing the mechanics of this, this is more stressful on the UCL, this is more stressful on the flexor mass. So when we talk about UCL injuries, the majority of these are chronic overuse injuries. You may have your kid say, man, I threw that pitch. He's standing on the mound. You go out to see him. He says, I felt a pop. You know, something's, something's wrong. Most, most of the time, it's, it's the chronic strain on that ligament that leads to that. Again, pitching generates a huge valgus force at the elbow, and it's, it's just a huge amount of stress on there. We'll talk about that. So conservative treatment of partial UCL tears. The kid comes in. He goes to the doc, he's got a grade one MCL strain of his elbow. How long does a ligament take to heal? Six to 12 weeks, right? I mean, six is the minimum. So if we say a grade one, it takes six weeks for that ligament to calm down. This is the problem with why we don't see more of these kids give it longer. So we're telling them, you need to take anywhere from one to three months off from playing, from throwing a baseball, and then I'm gonna tell them, I'm gonna give them the really bad news and say, if you've been off for three months, it's gonna take you at least three months to build back up for us to progressively load that ligament. And now they've missed six months. And then what happens if at the end of that six months, their elbow still hurts? Now they're having surgery and it's another year from there. And so the timeline for high school kids especially is they run out of calendar. Making sure that they have normal cuff and scapular strength, all these other things that we talked about, Throwing program uh, is critical to the success and, and fixing their throwing mechanics as well. So some of the other techniques we'll see is PRP injections. Jury's still out on this. Um, you'll see it a lot in professional baseball because there's nothing that's cost prohibitive to teams to do uh, PRP injection. 
Um, and what do we do with the younger athlete who has a partial UCL? This is like the kid that's 14 or 15. He's skeletally immature. He's got a partial tear. He doesn't really, we don't really want to operate on, you know, they don't want to operate on his elbow yet. And, and, but more importantly from that is, are they willing to try conservative care? Are they going to give it time to see if it gets better from that? I don't know about you guys, but I don't want many 14, 15 year old kids to have to have major elbow surgery if, if we can give it a chance not to that. So now there's an evolving technique. How many of you guys have heard of UCL repair with internal brace? A couple, okay. So in our experience, we see more baseball players than anybody in Houston. We've probably seen a dozen of these over the last two years. Essentially what it is, Arthrex makes a collagen embedded tape uh, that's sewn into right over your native UCL and fixed on the ulna and the medial epicondyle, basically right over the ligament. And it allows us to, to more quickly recover than a traditional UCL. So you're still stabilizing it, but you're, you're stabilizing it with a fiber tape rather than a reconstructed ligament, okay? So I, I don't know on these. I, again, we have a dozen, that's not that many. We don't have anybody that we followed for more than 18 months. Um, so I don't know if these kids, now what I will tell you is your high school kid, they typically are back playing in about six months versus 12 to 18 months, like a traditional UCL, but I don't know the long-term outcomes. So I think that'll be something for us to see. Nothing's really saying that that's going to protect them long-term from having a UCL reconstruction or um, if, if how long it lasts. So when we talk about internal rotation deficit in the shoulder, it's been very much correlated in multiple studies to be associated with valgus instability. So your kid that has a big internal rotation deficit, this study was greater than 20. Those kids were the ones that, that hurt their elbow. So when we talk in the lab, I'm going to show you guys, when we look at these kids' elbows, the elbow is part of it, but we have to take into account the shoulder, the hip, the core, all those other factors in there because this is really important post-op UCL to make sure we're addressing that when we're clear to in the rehab. Same goes for balance and UCL tears. This was a study that Craig Garrison out of um, Fort Worth did. Basically, they looked at 30 guys. The UCL tear group showed significantly decreased single leg balance with Y balance tests than the, the uninjured group. So the kids that come up and they can't hold their balance and they drop and their elbow gets into a bad position, those are the kids that get hurt. So again, as you're rehabbing, really important, especially you know, by week four post-op UCL reconstruction, we're having these kids do a ton of core, hip, and balance exercises, and we're looking at their shoulder. When we talk about UCL surgery, the UCL is primarily composed of two bundles, anterior and posterior, and, and the anterior bundle is, is really the part that we're talking about. It runs from the inferior aspect of the medial epicondyle and inserts on the sublime tubercle, and I'll show you guys how to find that with your palpation. Posterior bundle is really just the floor of the uh, cubital tunnel, and here you can see this. And if you look at the surgical breakdowns of this, this is from Andrew's book, The Athlete's Elbow, there's, there's an anterior and posterior band of this anterior bundle, and really that posterior band is the one with baseball players that, that gets hurt. But you can see here that posterior part is really just the floor of the cubital tunnel there. It's the primary restraint of valgus throughout its functional range of motion. And really, the bony anatomy, less than 20 degrees and more than 120 is where the bone kicks in. But in that 
20 to 120 is where the elbow is. So when we talk about moving valgus and some of the exams for that, that's why we're doing them in those ranges of motion. Okay. So again, talking about professional baseball players that have played for years, abnormal is normal. And this study looked at the anterior band and said it's thicker in their pitching arm versus their non-pitching arm. When we add stress to it, it's thicker than their non-pitching arm and their joint space has a little more laxity. 2.8 millimeters in their pitching versus that. And then once they load that, 4.2 versus 3. And again, these were asymptomatic and the numbers are saying 70 to 80% of these guys, their elbow doesn't look right on an MRI. Okay, This study just came out at the end of 19 and I think it's an incredible incredibly powerful tool for our parents. This study said that we wanted to look at, okay, those adaptive changes that happen, we know the ligament gets thicker, the joint space is wider. What happens after we rest? If we truly take time off, do those get better in the elbow? And in the UCL and the ulnar humeral joint space or that medial side, they looked at preseason versus postseason, and essentially they went back to normal. So the UCL returned to baseline thickness with rest. It took six or eight weeks off. Guess what? The ligament got better. It went back. And they had a significant decrease in the loaded and unloaded on the humeral joint space with rest. So their joint tightened back up. Stop throwing for a little bit. Let your elbow heal. Let your elbow recover from all the stress you've done. And again, this study just came out. I think it's incredibly powerful. What, what's interesting about, about this study is they also looked at the shoulder, and if they had preseason GERD, internal rotation deficit of the shoulder, it correlated with increased space in the ulnohumeral joint space. So again, I showed you a study that was done in 09 by Josh Dines that said, if, if you've got shoulder tightness, you're more likely to have an elbow issue. If you've got shoulder tightness, you're more likely to have increased gapping of your medial elbow. And if you had a, an internal rotation deficit greater than 10 degrees, your UCL was also thicker. It was responding more to the stress, okay? So the summary of this is the adaptive changes in the elbow from pitching got better with off-season rest, but the shoulder range of motion was progressive and did not improve. In other words, if we're not addressing that, we're not teaching these kids how to stretch their posterior shoulder, it's not gonna get better, and it's gonna continue to feed into their medial elbow issues. So again, UCL function, the primary role is to resist valgus. The flexor pronator muscles, as we talked about earlier, they're trying to help us. Their, their MVIC is really high when we throw, but it, it just has a limited ability. And that's in contrast to the shoulder where they play a huge role in joint stability. So the valgus loads produce an elite pitcher throwing a fastball, approach and or exceed the tensile strength of the UCL every fastball they throw, every hard fastball that they throw. So the loads are repetitive and significant, and that leads to attenuation. So here's some of the studies that talk about the breakage of that. During throwing, the force is estimated at 35 newtons. Well, if you look at it in the lab and where we take everything away and just try to break it, it breaks at 33 newtons. But again, we said those old modeling studies, thankfully the ligament absorbs about 50% of that. So when we talk about UCL reconstruction, the goal is to restore normal anatomy but the rehab must be based on their surgical technique. This, I think it's just important to understand that. So 
If you've got docs that are sending you UCL reconstruction, see what they did. Are they Andrews trained where they're doing a modification of Job's original technique? And we'll show you a picture of that. Or is it one of the newer procedures, docking, modified docking, interference screw, or hybrid? Okay, doesn't really change the outcomes of those. The outcomes are all still pretty predictable, uh, but I just think it's important to note that, especially here, because Andrews will move the nerve, and we'll talk about that in just a second, um, and that's important for when you're, when you're doing soft tissue on these guys. So the history of this, Frank Job was the first UCL reconstruction in 1974. He went on to win 164 games in that, and he got named that. Okay, so looking at MLB and UCL, uh, obviously, this is big business, and this is a, a lot of the guys that I take care of. From 99 to 2015, there were 235 players that had Tommy John. Now we're seeing more guys that are having revision, right? More guys that are having a second TJ. So 31 of those, or 13%, had to have a revision. 26 of them, they were able to follow for more than two years. 65% returned to pitch in at least one game after their second Tommy John. But look at this. Only 42% return to pitch in 10 games or more. So a guy that has a second TJ and there's one guy in, in Major League Baseball that's had three. I mean, you're, you're talking about 18 months of rehab to 24 months for the second Tommy John. I mean, these, these, are, these are long things. The other part is that these guys had shorter careers, pitched fewer innings, and had fewer pitches per season than the control group. So what I want you to take from that is that there's a risk for revision and all these guys, and we get a lot of these parents and the youth athletes that still think that if their kid has TJ, their elbow will be stronger. I should just go ahead and get it done so that he'll be stronger. It has to do with what you guys are doing with them, you know, from a rehab standpoint, it's what makes them stronger. It's not the surgery, and there's no guarantee. So here's another one of the cost of Tommy John in Major League Baseball. This came out just this past week. 194 players had surgery from 2004 to 2014, and that's just major leaguers. That doesn't include the minor league guys and doesn't include guys that had surgery before the draft. So they missed an average of 180.2 days of regular season. How long is the regular season? 180 days, six months. So it's pretty much, they, they're all missing at least one year. But look at this, the cost of recovery to the teams, $395 million in missed time. They're paying, baseball's guaranteed money, right? So when, when I'm hurt, they're still paying me my salary and they're paying the guy that's replacing me. But again, all the statistics are showing pretty high return to, to, to play rates, okay? So here's just a, a quick uh, graphic of Dr. Andrews' modified joke technique. This is the nerve, this is what I want you to, to think about. So if a guy goes to Andrews, he's gonna have the nerve move because of the technique of drilling the holes. So the nerve will be here. So that's important when you're doing soft tissue work on them or you're working with them after they're recovering to make sure that you're not digging down too deep on the medial flexor mass because their nerve sits there now. Also important after you, uh, ulnar nerve transposition. So here's uh, all checks technique. Basically they're, uh, rather than figure eight the graph, they're docking it in this tunnel here and tying it across a bony bridge. Important thing there is the guys that have this, once their swelling goes down, they'll typically be able to feel the knot that's, that's tied behind their medial epicondyle. So if you look at the biomechanical evaluation of these techniques, docking supposedly uh, produced higher uh, moments of failure than traditional Job, but essentially none of them were quite as high as the native ligament. But again, unlike an ACL, where you take the ACL out and put the new one in, 
they're sewing the new ligament in on top of the old one. So in your UCL reconstructions, they leave the old ligament and sew this on top of it so it's a thicker construct. Okay? Neither produce the same biomechanical profile. Typically, grass for this will be uh, palmaris longus if you have it. Uh, some docs are taking same side, some contralateral arm. Um, Gracilis autograft is the other choice. I've seen two that have been allografts. There's, there are a few papers in the literature that talk about allografts, uh, but most commonly in, in baseball, you're going to see uh, some sort of autograft. So again, the return to play success hovers around 90% in the literature. Why are they so much better than shoulder surgery? This is one of the reasons why. If you look at the biomechanics of the elbow after elbow surgery, after UCL, this was a study that Flysig did um, out of Birmingham. They looked at 80 active players in minor league baseball. They took their camera system out. They looked at all their biomechanics, and they said essentially there's no difference in their shoulder and elbow uh, range of motion and no difference in their biomechanics when they throw. This is not the case after shoulder surgery. What do you think the return to play rates are in baseball after shoulder surgery? 60%, and that's the highest one, okay? So the reason is if you look at the biomechanic studies of shoulder after shoulder surgery, you lose horizontal extension and external rotation, two of the critical pieces to throwing. And that's where I think the elbow return to play criteria are higher, okay? Rehab guidelines, there's a couple of good articles out there. I can send those to you, but essentially we'll just go through kind of the highlights of this. We're going to protect the healing graft for a minimum of six weeks. We're really trying to restore normal strength. But again, what I want you guys to think about is not just the elbow. It's really easy to get the elbow strength back up. But looking at posterior cuff, scapular stabilizers, core, hip, all of the balance, all those other factors... We don't put any load on the ligament for about four months just because it needs time to mature. At that point, too, when we start the throwing program at four or five months post-op, we tell these kids that the throwing program is how we're stressing the ligament. So a ligament responds to stress, a little bit of stress, recover, a little bit more stress, recover. And that's why the throwing programs are so long after UCL reconstruction because you're progressively loading that and it's, as one of our docs says, it's the strengthening for the ligament. So nothing we do in, in the training room or in the clinic is really truly going to strengthen that ligament until we start the throwing program. And that's why it's absolutely critical that we have a good plan and that we don't skip steps along the way. Okay? Those are those gradual loads to the elbow. So common myth, having Tommy John is going to make me a stronger pitcher, uh, you know, that, that we still get asked that question. There's no guarantee of the outcome. The other thing is if you look at the medical literature and say, return to previous level of play. Well, if you're a freshman in high school and you're playing freshman or JV baseball, yeah, we got a pretty, probably an 80% chance we can get you back to playing freshman or JV baseball. But what's the predictive value? And there are some new studies coming out now talking about the number of guys that have had surgery in high school or college that are now uh, in professional baseball. So mechanics, core, lower body strength and balance are critical to that. So in summary, a great deal of stress is placed on the elbow with throwing. The muscles of the forearm have a limited ability to help with that. We do still have to strengthen those, uh, but they can't help us as much as we'd like. Ligament and, and bone absorb a significant amount, specifically the ligament. 
And then all these other things that go into that. And so, kind of two take-home points here. Great rehab and poor throwing mechanics is just a matter of time. And, and it's very, very important that we address those along the way. And then volume, especially in the youth thrower, it's absolutely, uh, absolutely critical that we have these discussions with these parents.